0: For those of you who are, who are joining us for the first time, yet we have, like George was mentioning, we're doing just a quick two-part series on the life of David. Next week, we're going to enter into our series on Psalms, which we're really looking forward to. The ministry team has been eagerly awaiting going through the Psalms, and like George said, that depth and breadth within the Psalms is really tremendous. And so we thought it would be helpful here in these few weeks leading up to that to look, though, at the life of David as one of the chief authors in the Psalms. Because we do start to see some of the big questions and ideas that really permeate the Psalms through his life as well. Last week, we recapped a lot of David's life, from his childhood to Goliath, to serving under Saul, from fleeing Israel and serving the Philistines, his ascension in Judah, the civil war within Israel, eventually him becoming the king of Israel, the abuse of his power once he takes the throne, and that downward spiral the dysfunction of his family and the heartbreak, really, of his life. And like we talked about last week, you know, David is a very complicated hero. You know, if if you grew up with just a very, you know, Christian understanding, evangelical understanding of your Bible stories, you know, you go to Sunday school, you kind of, you learn these heroes of the faith, and we have a tendency to sometimes to put them on pedestals or to not want to see any faults in them. Or if we grow up in a more secular culture or context, we want to kind of tear down all of our supposedly religious heroes, and we talked about that last week of how within David you really do see an incredible mix of desires and actions. There clearly is this desire to be the king that he was promised he was going to be from his childhood, and he's willing to do anything to ascend to that throne. He will do anything to stay alive. If it means murder and killing, if it means serving Israel's sworn enemy, he will he will do it. Uh, and you see within his life, but you also see a deep love of the Lord in his life and a restraint at times that comes from his faith. He's a mix of, as a person, which really leaves us and left us last week as readers of the word and going through this narrative with a lot of questions about David, about what does it actually mean then to be a man after God's own heart? What does it mean to be someone like David, are we supposed to emulate him, or are we supposed to not emulate him? What is it about him that's so unique? Because really, when you look at David, I mean, how can this man be called a man after God's own heart? And that was the question that came up in the, in the Q&A, and it was the right question to kind of come up. I think Debbie asked that. Like, well, what is it about him then? If he, if he lived such a life that at times was good in glorifying God, but at most of it seemed very selfish and led to destruction and sin and horror how why do we call him that what is it about him why does he get to be the one to receive the blessings of god why does he get to be the one that jesus is going to come from his line he doesn't seem that great he seems a lot like the other kings he seems a lot like saul before him he seems a lot like the kings that are going to come after him he wins battles but is that what it means to please god Is it his strength? Is it his might? What is it that makes him who he is? He's the most prolific writer of the Psalms, like we talked about, and his Psalms are truly tremendous. How is he doing that? You know, some of his Psalms, he's writing as he's pillaging towns in Philistia and killing and slaughtering men, women, and children. He's also writing Psalms. How? How can you do that one day and then write beautiful Psalms to the Lord the next? What is it about this man? How can he be so honest with his life? How can he be so honest with God? How can he claim what he claims, asks for what he asks for? How is he not just completely undone by the weight of his sin? Clearly, David has some sort of understanding and strength that sustains him and gives him hope that makes it possible for David to be honest with his hurt and with his sin, not needing to minimize it, not needing to run away from it, not needing to blame other people for his problems, but without completely losing hope. He also has a strength that enables him to be bold and confident and secure in his calling, in what he's going to do, even though his track record doesn't look like it, without making him arrogant. So today we want to look at the source of David's hope. Which is the same same source of hope that was offered to Israel and that's also offered to us, and so the Second Samuel seven passage that Jeff read for us really is the crux of the whole former prophets. This whole section of the Bible all is about this chapter, and it's a really important chapter, and it's a huge moment in David's life. And when you look at this context, and it's you know Jeff read it, and it's in our our handout here today, you know, it's, it's classic David at the beginning, right? He has done it. He's taken a capital. He has built himself a palace. He's now resting there in this beautiful palace that he's built, and he wants to build the Lord a house. And you really laughed as a reader wondering, what's David's motivations here? Why? Why does he want to build God a house? Is it guilt? He's sitting in such a nice palace, while the Ark of the Covenant, right, is still sitting in a musty tent from the Exodus. You know, is it because he he wants to honor the Lord and feels like I should build him a a palace too? That God should live in one. Most likely, maybe it's also because all the other he's been through Philistia, he's been through every, every other nation has temples to their gods, and here Israel and they've become this great nation now under his leadership, and their God lives in a tent. Uh, that doesn't seem right. I'm gonna, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build him a palace. I'm going to build God a temple, just like all the other gods have, just like all the other nations have. Kind of a crowning achievement to his life. But again, it's just that mixed desires and motivations within David. Well, is it fully honorable to the Lord? Is it not? And God responds, though, through the prophet Nathan, and kind of puts David in his place. It was kind of a very much, you know, who do you think you are, David? Do you really think that if I wanted a house, I wouldn't have a house? You know, just a reminder, you know, David, let's, let's just be reminded here of who's the one who's going to do things in this relationship. I've done all the work to this point. I brought my people to this place. I took you from the pasture. And I put you in this place. Do you really think you built this palace you live in? Do you think you built this whole kingdom? Do you think you're the one who's doing all of the work, David? I'm the one who's done all the work. I've done all the work to this point, and I will keep doing all the work. I will save Israel. You are not the savior of Israel. And that kind of humbling aspect of the hero, like last week, David is not the hero Israel was waiting for. He's a huge letdown on that front. God is the hero of the story. God is the one who will save Israel. God is the one who will redeem Israel. God is the one who saved David, who will continue to save David, and who's going to save David and his family in the future. Do you think you can build me a house? Uh, Question He asks him. The reality is, I'm going to build you a house. Right? God flips the whole narrative on David. David comes to him with this request Let me build you a temple, Lord. Let me build you something that will last forever, that will bring glory and honor to you. And God says, No, no, no. I'm the one who's going to be building a house here. I'm the one who's going to build a house that will be for my namesake. It will last forever. And it's going to involve you, David. It's going to be your line. It's going to be your child. You will have a son who will rule forever. I'm going to save all of Israel. I'm going to save all of humanity. I'm going to save everything like I always have. And it's going to be through you, David. Which is shocking. Again, depending on how you read David, if that was hubris at the beginning or not. But for God to just say, no but I choose you, David. Through you, salvation will come. And then we read David's response. David's response is beautiful. He gets it. He heard the word of the Lord, and he responded to it. Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God, that you would do this for me? Who am I that you would give me a gift like this? A gift for my family. A gift for me. But more than that, right? David recognizes that this promise is a gift not just for him, but for all of humanity. It's because of your promise, your love, he continually says in his response, in his prayer to God. You alone are great. And he says at the end, because of your promise because you said this now i have the courage to ask you to fulfill what you said you would do this encounter in second samuel 7 is really meant as this humbling and emboldening moment for david it really takes him down a notch Right In terms of, you think you're the one who builds kingdoms? You think you're the one who builds houses? You think you're the savior of Israel? And he calls him right? Remember, I set you up as a prince, not as the king. You're not the one who does all this work. You're just a part of the story, David. You're not the hero in the story. That's humbling. Right? That's humbling. And like we talked about last week, We all have that desire to be a hero. We want to be the hero, or at least we want our heroes to be those heroes. And we want our saviors to be good. We want them to work out. And here God is telling David, You're not the hero. He's just part of the story. But on the other hand, he's part of the story, which is incredible. He's not cut out of the story. He's not telling David, David, you're wrong. You're not the hero. The true hero is coming someday. Just do your thing. He's really, no, David, you are part of it though. You are part of this story of salvation that I have for Israel. I choose you, David, to work through, to save through, to redeem this gift. I've chosen you. You're not the hero. You're just a part of the story, but you're part of the story. The humbling and the confidence that gives, though, the hope that that gives to know that you are part of God's story of redemption, to actually know that God loves you enough to use you, to work in you, to not discard you, but to actually use you to work out his redemption in this world. And so you see that mix of humility and courage. In the Psalms that David is going to write, you see this in his response, that mix of humility and courage, the ability to be honest and open, to really see one's own sin, but to also take heart in the same way. And without this hope, without this promise, it's not possible to do both unless there is a bigger story than our own individual stories where we still get to play a part in it, but we're not the hero of it, where our hurts and our failures are going to be redeemed, right? it's impossible to be honest. It's impossible to have hope and to be honest and to confess. Right? And this we talked about that vacillating we do in our hero narratives of our heroes are either perfect or they're all villains. You know? Or you know, we, we just go back and forth because we want them to be Because how can someone, how can I have both? How can I have the presence of sin within me and around me, but also the hope and see actual redemption being worked out? Unless there was a bigger story than my story that was going to redeem all of this, otherwise I can't be honest. I have to minimize. I have to hide. I have to compartmentalize. I share some things with some people. I go to some people for some things because I can't fully be honest and transparent. I can't truly trust people or anyone or God in these things because it's just the weight of it is too hard. And for many of us, I think we grew up with an understanding, again if you if you kind of have a child's understanding of the Old Testament or of the Bible, you kind of grew up with this picture that Christianity and the Bible offers a better life. That Christianity offers blessings, riches, freedom from all of our struggles and our hurts. That once you follow God, it's just going to be blessings upon blessings, goodness and happiness, joy, and all of those types of things. But then we're confronted with Scripture, and it doesn't seem to offer those things. God didn't offer that to David. David, the rest of your life is going to be great. I chose you, and I'm going to work out redemption in you, and through you, and through your line. Now the rest is going to be clear sailing. No. Next comes Bathsheba and adultery and murder, and the death of his child, and the dysfunction in his family, the falling of the kingdom. Far from it does it look like things go well for him now that he's the recipient of this promise. What Christianity does offer is honesty. Christianity does offer for us the chance to be truly known and to be fully loved. Not for our circumstances to change, Not for our outward problems to go away, but to be truly loved what Christianity offers. Because the story of David really confronts us about our ideas of what it means to be a person of faith. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart? What does it mean to actually be a person of faith, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to follow God, to please him? Ultimately, what do you want from God? I think it's helpful as we go through these, this story, as we talk about what does it mean to be a person of faith, I want to start with, from the text, what it doesn't mean. right? What, it, what what doesn't it mean to be a Christian, a person of faith or to be a Christian? Because again, we tend to bring into the text and into our understanding a lot of pre-knowledge and presuppositions. And again, if you grew up with religious people in your life, you Kind of already have in your mind, like this is what it means, and it's really hard to undo those things to actually be able to hear what the text is actually telling us it means. And a lot of times, it it, that taints everything. And I think the first thing I just picked three things because, right? I don't know. We've talked about this before. It's always three things, and I pick these three. You may pick three other things, and you see this in David's life, but you also certainly see this really in all of the examples of faith through the Bible of those who come to the saving knowledge of God and who he is and of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but I think we see three things that it doesn't mean to be a Christian. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you give up pursuing your desires. It doesn't look like that. It doesn't mean giving things up. There's, I think there's a fundamental misconception that we have in our culture, it's very religious. We have a, even though we're kind of a post-Christian world, we're also still really religious in a lot of ways. And we have this vision or view that there are some things in life that are better than other things in life. There are some pursuits that are holier than others. There are some jobs that are holier than others. There are some things that are just more tainted than other things. And so to be a Christian, to be a religious, to be a follower, you have to give up some things and replace it with other things. Making money is greedy. So if you work in finance, or you're making lots of money, and you come to Christ, sell your possessions. That would be a better follower of Jesus Christ than somebody who would stay in a position where they make lots of money. This picture that there's a life that is a truly Christian life, and then these aspects, these things that are not a Christian life, and you should change them. You know, David doesn't give up being the king after this moment. Could, right? He could enter the priesthood, give himself over, kind of like Samuel does, you know, enter into the service of the Lord full-time, right? Why would I wage war? Why would I do all of these things? But he doesn't. He doesn't stop He doesn't give up his callings that God has given him and his work that God has called him to do. And nor do you see that with anybody, you know, Esther, Daniel, any of these people who get called by God, they don't quit their work. They don't quit doing the things that they were called to do because they've now encountered this living God. It's kind of an idea that, and I hear it from from young people too, but the idea like, you know, Christianity is something waiting for you down the road. After the best years of your life are over, then I'll become a Christian. After I've lived it up through college, because if I'm a Christian, you just can't have a lot of fun when you're a Christian. Christians are solemn, they pray all the time, they do religious devotions. You know, they don't do things that are enjoyable. I'll wait before I really become a good Christian, a true Christian. That's not it. David's life doesn't change outwardly. He stays the same. He does the same things from day to day after he receives the promises of God. Is it possible that God is calling us and redeeming us right where we are in the callings that we have, in the work that you have? It may be for a reason that he has found you right where you are and plans to use you in that context where you are when you've encountered Christ. I think the other thing that it doesn't mean that we have a tendency to, again, put on Christianity, is that being a Christian means being a good person. It means being a happy person, a normal person, having it together. We have this really kind of picture that Christians should be the happiest people. They should be the nicest people, the most thankful people. That Christians, true Christians, give thanks all the time. True Christians are really really the nicest, kindest people you're ever going to meet. They should have their act together. If they don't have their act together, they're not normal. Well, then there's something wrong with them, and there's something wrong with their religion. If it's not producing good, normal, happy, thankful people, well, then what kind of God are you following? Tim Keller argues that this is one of the reasons why he urges people to live in cities. I think many of you who have lived in the city for a while know this, because he says, when you live in the city... You will encounter people who are not Christian, but who are nicer than you, and who are nicer than the Christians you know, and you will be confronted with this idolatry that Christianity is supposed to create nice people. David's not that nice. This doesn't change him. He, his life, you know, what, what is the point of being a Christian, right, to make us thankful, to make us happy, to make us normal? We have a picture that, you know, in the scripture says, God blesses his people, so therefore I should be thankful for everything he gives me. But we have a, we're thankful, but with this expectation of the shoe dropping, the other shoe dropping, like I should be thankful or else he may stop giving me stuff. My life may not be that good. It's very kind of passive-aggressive Minnesotan Christianity. Kind of the always be thankful, never complain. If I'm a Christian, Christians never complain. My life is always pretty good. There's nothing really ever that wrong. I got it. To, it's good. Good. God's blessed me. God's got it. God's got it all under control. Everything's good. Everything's fine. I'm fine. Right? And we create these personas, these images of people who have their life together, who are normal, quote-unquote, and that's it. And, but we're not honest with ourselves, with others. We compartmentalize certain parts of our lives. We hide, just like, you know, you're having somebody over to the house. It's easy just to throw things into one room and never let people see those things. And we do that with our lives as Christians too. When I come to church, I should be thankful. I should be happy. When people ask me how I'm doing, everything's great, everything's good. Could be worse. Can't complain because Christians are thankful. Christians are happy. Christians are good. I think the third one is one, you, you push back, but hear me out. We'll see how it goes. Overcoming sin, right? Being a Christian doesn't mean I stop sinning, that I've conquered it all, and I've, that being a Christian means that i have overcoming my sins, that there's a picture, at least in our minds and our culture, that Christians don't sin, or at least they don't sin as much. That we should at least be on a continuum of I sinned a lot before I became a Christian, but now I'm sinning less and less and less as I continue to get older. Which just isn't the truth, <laughs> and that's a and it's a picture of sin as a list of behaviors of things to avoid. Right? I don't do these things anymore. Therefore, I'm getting better and better and less sinful and less sinful. I'm overcoming sin. I'm doing it, I'm working, I'm working at it, which leads to this kind of Christian subculture of accountability groups, of minimizing our sins, because if I'm supposed to be overcoming sin and not sinning, and sinning less and less, then I have to start looking around my life and making things not sin, (laughs) because otherwise I'm still sinning. You know what, getting angry at my kids, that's not really sin, Losing my patience—that's not a sin. Grumbling and complaining in traffic's not a sin. Do we minimize anything around us to make it not as sinful. The big stuff? Oh yeah, I'm done with that. I said goodbye to all those things when I accepted Christ. So I'm getting better and better and better and better and better and better. I'm overcoming my sins. Being a Christian doesn't mean overcoming sin. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a person of faith? What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? I think the text is very simple. Scripture has been pointing to this all the way, and we see it here in 2 Samuel. Being a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a believer, to be a person of faith, is that you believe that you are so loved by God that he would send his son to take the blame you deserve and give you the credit for the righteousness you don't deserve. David believes that God is for him. That's it. He believes that God has saved him, that God is saving him, and that God will save him. He has that expectation, that belief, a fundamental belief of it. God told him, I've saved you. I am saving you. I will save you. And David believes it. That's what it means to be a person of faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. That it has nothing to do with ourselves. David clearly understands that none of it is about him. He did not save himself. He is not going to be the one to save him. He is not going to be the one to save Israel or his family or the future. God chose David to love And David believes it. That's what it means to be a Christian. That we believe God chose us to love. He chose me to love and to save outside of myself. That's what it means. Christianity is unlike any religion or philosophy in the world. Where you get the verdict before the trial that makes sense? You know, like, all of life feels like we're always on trial, always trying to prove. Every religion, every philosophy says, right, gives you a path, gives you something to do, and if you do it well enough, hopefully you'll get a verdict at the end. You lived a good life, whether you're secular or religious, right? Everyone's striving to live a good life, to get a verdict from somebody. We're desperate for that verdict in our lives, and so we, cha- we look for different people to give us the verdict that we're looking for, if it's our spouse, if it's our kids, if it's our employers, if it's our neighbors, if it's right someone to th- just say, you're a good person. I like you. I love you. You are doing it right. You are right. You're on the right side of things, right? It's why we love, like we were talking about, like why we love religion, why we love sports, why we love politics, because it gives us clear sides, and the chance to be told, you're on the right team, you're on the right side, you're good enough, you're lovable, I love you, I like you, you're the one. We're always looking for the verdict. And in all religions and all philosophies, that verdict is going to come at the end, after you have to prove it. But in Christianity, it comes at the beginning. It's unlike anything else, where the verdict comes and says, before we've done anything, you're the one. I love you. I like you. Jesus exchanges positions with us because it's not just that the courtroom didn't, doesn't exist anymore. That's part of some of us just want that. Was well, forget it. Just be free of judgment. Who cares what anybody thinks of you anymore? That's not satisfying because <laughs> I need that judgment to actually happen. There really was a courtroom. There really was a case. Jesus was really paraded before the court, before Pilate, before everybody, and was declared a sinner when he shouldn't have been. He was killed as a sinner for us, who are the actual sinners. He rose from the dead and was vindicated and declared righteous. And he gave that verdict to us, who don't deserve it. We're out of the courtroom that working hard and desire for that verdict that you are somebody who's lovable, you are somebody who's worthy, you, it's been given to us. So when God looks upon us now, he says, right, you are my child in whom I am well pleased. I find no fault in you. Which is what he's telling David. David, I find no fault in you how can he say that? I can find a million faults in David. (laughs) I can find a million faults in me. How can God look at me and say, you're my son. I'm fully pleased in you. Fully pleased with you. I love you. You are a man after my own heart. You're a daughter after my own heart. Because Jesus took our place and gives us that credit. And if you think about it, that changes everything. If that's true, it changes everything. Because it doesn't then focus on our symptoms, right? But it actually goes straight to the disease. Israel's true problem. Israel's issue wasn't that they didn't have a king, but they needed a good king, a better king, who would be a good one. No, no, no. Their problem, right, was their heart that they would rather have kings and a kingdom and no God than no king or kingdom and God. (laughs) That was their problem. And that's my problem. It's our heart that's the problem, not the symptoms, not the outsides. Not if we attack it from the outside, right, it never gets deep enough to actually attack our hearts, to actually deal with our situations. C.S. Lewis gives an illustration of this in Mere Christianity. of you know, It's kind of like if I want to grow corn in my backyard, that's great. And so I just mow the lawn every day, hoping and waiting for corn to come. It's never going to (laughs) come, but I can mow the lawn because these weeds and grass keeps popping up, so let me just keep mowing it, taking care of it, and one day that corn is going to come. It isn't, but that's what happens in Christianity when we just focus on these symptoms, these outward behaviors or actions, and we say, oh, a Christian doesn't do this. I should stop that. You're just mowing the lawn, and you're still hoping for that corn, but it's never going to actually happen until the ground gets torn up tilled up and new seeds are planted then my yard will change and that's what the gospel does for us because if i actually believe and meditate on that and let the reality of god's love for me and for us that we are his children that he loves fully and completely he knows me completely the worst of me And he declares me righteous through his son. If I let that reality settle into my heart, if I truly know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, and if I let that love permeate me, it changes me. I do experience more and more peace in my life, making me seem happier, making me more joyful, making me more thankful. It does come out. There's a reason we have that misconception that Christians are thankful and joyful and peaceful. Be because it does come. There is a joy and a peace that comes from knowing Christ. But There's also an outward faking it and seeking that fruit of the Spirit and just doing things that we think we should do too. When I let the love of God really permeate my soul and my heart, right, my desires do start to shift more and more in alignment with his desires which means sometimes I do give up certain pursuits. And I do stop doing some things and switch career paths or go do other things or give up that and go to that. But it's not because I'm trying to please God, but because I do please God. I've already pleased God. And I'm becoming more and more in alignment with him and his loves. Because he loves me, I love him, and I love what he loves. And my desires do start to shift. And I start to give up foolish things. I right? say, I don't need to do that anymore. And we do actually start to overcome and put to death sin in our lives. But part of a loving sanctification process, not as a selfish means of proving our salvation to God. I don't see it as a problem, but we get to see our sin and this process of overcoming sin and dealing with sin as a gift, not as a disappointment in our life. Right? Because it's easy as Christians to look at your sin and say, This is the worst. I can't believe this happened again. I can't believe I'm still dealing with this. I should be done with this. I shouldn't have this. I should... Why can't I just be normal? Why can't I just be fixed? You are fixed. And you're being fixed, and you will be fixed one day. And this life is a gift that you get to be sanctified with others. The gospel goes straight to our hearts, it rearranges our loves, which is reflected in the Psalms. It's not about our outward actions, but it's about our love. I can be honest without fear of being unloved. Because that's the, the great fear. Every, I think Carl Jung, this great psychologist, talks about the, the greatest desire everyone has is to be fully known and fully loved. That's what we all just want so desperately. But we're paralyzed by fear that if you do really know me, you will not love me. Because if you know everything, there's no way that you will love all of me. So, We superficially love each other, and this happens a ton in Christianity, right? We just love and hug and I love you, but it's not satisfying enough. It doesn't go deep enough. It works for a while, but it doesn't fully work. But if this is true about me, that God actually knows me and he fully loves me, I can be honest without any fear. I can confess my sins to God, to myself. To other people without any fear. I can also openly confess my hopes and desires without sounding arrogant and boastful. I can also be confident in the Lord and not have to be falsely humble all the time and say that I don't, you know, uh, not do anything big. I don't want to do anything major with my life. The Bible is an invitation to us to reorder our hopes and our loves. This is how the Psalms are going to function for us. Scripture is written to remind us of God's great love for us. To start to see our stories properly. That my story is part of a bigger story. It's not all about me. My life is not about me. My story is not about me. But it's part of God's story. But that takes intentional time of renewal of the mind of worship, study, prayer, and community. This is why we gather together as a church. The church doesn't exist just to encourage each other or to build each other up, to convert people, to overcome sin. That's the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in us, but it's not why we gather. It's not the role of the church. The Christian community exists to testify to the truth of God's love for us, to remind one another and to remind ourselves of who we truly are in Christ. I am known by the Father. I am fully redeemed and loved. It's to point ourselves and others to the true story of salvation and to invite us to have our hearts changed. So, For many of us, you know, a lot of our Christian life has been an exhausting process of mowing the grass, so to speak. Just dealing with outward symptoms our whole life and just trying to knock those down and hope that change will come. The gospel is inviting you to stop and to experience true rest, to rest in his love and his grace, and to let him do the work. He's the one who builds the houses. He's the one who does the building. We don't. Rest in his love and his mercy, and it changes us, and it reorders our hearts and our lives and our actions.